News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we know social media companies track us. We may not like it, but we know what happens, right? So does your feeling about being tracked change when you know it's the federal government that is doing this? Well, Canada's public health agency acknowledged last month that it is buying location data, like many companies do, to try to track people's movements during the pandemic. So what does all this mean? What are they using it for? Well, joining us now is Alex Petillier, who's a senior national politics reporter for Global News. Alex, thanks for being here. Hey, good morning. Good to be here. So what are they doing with this information? What is it? So what the public health agency says they're doing is they're buying what's known as aggregate de-identified information, right? So it's not so much that they're looking or interested in your cell phone or your movements, but they're looking at sort of a population level, how people get, get around, especially during the pandemic, you know, when we've had lockdowns and restrictions on, you know, interprovincial travel even. Um, so they're, they're looking at using this data to sort of judge how effective those public health measures have been and where, for instance, they need to do more public health messaging, right, to remind people or encourage people to stay home when they're, they're told to stay home, that sort of thing. Um, the way it's sort of been presented in some media reports is as if, you know, the Public Health Agency of Canada is spying on individual Canadians or collecting this data themselves, which is simply not the case. Um, obviously, there are privacy concerns engaged in this. I don't want to dismiss that. Um, but the notion that a, the government is collecting this information themselves, they're not, um, or B, that they're using it to track individuals' movements. It's just simply not true. So they're really looking right. at sort of a population level. Right. And so this is information that, you know, is on your cell phone that, let's be honest here, Alex, like other companies are buying too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and plenty of companies are, are tracking, you know, all the different apps that you have on your phone. Um, your mobile carrier in terms of, you know, what cell uh, towers you're connecting to as you drive across the city or drive across the province. Um, you know, all of this data is being collected by the private sector at an enormous rate. So, you know, I was talking to one professor at the University of Ottawa yesterday, Teresa Scazza, who said basically, like, people get really upset when they, they think the government is in possession of this data, but they don't seem to get as upset when Facebook or you right. know, Google or, or TELUS are collecting this information as a matter of course and selling it to whomever uh, they want to. So, you know, I think, I think there's, there's kind of a, a bit of an irony here that, you know, we only sort of get exercised about this when it's the government looking for this data, whereas, you know, Facebook, a for-profit company whose, you know, goal is to make as much money off of your data as possible is collecting this at a, at a huge, almost unimaginable scale. This is what I'm having trouble wrapping my head around with this, Alex, right. is that the federal government is doing this to track people, to monitor, you know, pandemic-related issues, but yet we, we, and people are getting upset about it. And I understand from your story, there was even an emergency House of Commons meeting, committee meeting about this. Right. Yeah, that's actually taking place tomorrow. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, how the different opposition parties sort of position themselves on this issue. But you're, you're quite right. That said, you know, there are, there are significant, you know, things to be concerned about here. You know, our privacy laws in Canada at the federal level, uh, in BC, you guys are a little bit better with your provincial laws, but at the federal level, the privacy laws are so outdated. You know, they were, they were made at a time when, you know, personal computers were rare and, you know, we weren't in this sort of digital information economy that we're in right now. 
So there are significant gaps in terms of federal rules and regulations about how government departments can uh, purchase this data, how they can analyze this data, how they can retain this data, and for how long. So there are, there are legitimate concerns around the government buying up, becoming a client of these data broker companies. Um, but that said, you know, I think we should focus on the real concerns, which is our aging privacy framework and not, you know, some imagined right. concerns, which is the government is tracking my cell phone. On an individual level, I'm sorry, you're just not that interesting to government departments. <laughs> I think you're interesting. But, but at, the, at the individual level, you know, the government is not going to learn a whole lot. Uh, they're really looking at sort of population level data. And, you know, the public health agency isn't the only government department who is, you know, in this game. So I think it bears having a larger conversation about what the rules should be and, and when the government should be able to use this kind of information. Right. My feeling with this is if you're upset about this, then wait till you see what all these other companies are doing with your information. I think a lot of people would be shocked, Alex, to find that out. Yeah, I think I think we're, we're learning sort of as a population more and more about, you know, some of the risks and some of the, um, the costs associated with these free apps, these free services. When you're not paying for something, that means you're the product, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of companies who are making tremendous amounts of information off of your personal data. And, you know, it's all included in those terms and, 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 and services, uh, you know, lists that we just click through and say, I agree all the time. Um, but, you know, it's, it's moments like this that can give us a, a second to sort of pause and really think about our place in, in, the, in the data economy. All right. So interesting then. So what are the next steps here? You said this committee meeting is happening tomorrow. What are they going to discuss? Well, I think they're going to try to find out more about the actual public health agency uh, program. You know, what, what sort of safeguards were in place, um, how the public agent, health agency made sure that this was de-identified information that they couldn't identify individuals from this data set. So there will be a lot of focus on the actual program itself. But I would hope that it would broaden uh, out to have, have a conversation about some of these issues that we've just talked about, about, you know, our aging privacy framework, our aging privacy laws, you know, what governments, how governments should be acting in this space and what, you know, what is responsible and, and you know, what we, what we can consent to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that this will be discussed over the course of several meetings. But the other thing to keep in mind is in the recent mandate letters that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau sent out to his cabinet, there was an indication that the government was considering further updating privacy laws, both for the public sector and for the, the private sector. So that's going to be something to watch to see if it's a priority for this government. I mean, they've got, you know, a lot on their plate and a lot they want to do in a minority situation. But nevertheless, you know, privacy advocates and, you know, even business people have been calling for an update to these privacy laws for years and years and years and years. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the government actually, you know, puts, puts priority on this because it's not just about protecting individuals' privacy. It's also a very significant economic issue when you think about how much money is being made in the data yeah. economy and how Canada has to position itself in order for its companies to succeed, but also for, you know, the governments to improve service, uh, improve service delivery, improve the information that they base their decisions on. You know, there's tremendous potential here, but I think everybody would be much more comfortable if it was transparent and clear yeah. about what government can and can't do in this space. Well, thanks so much for telling us about it this morning. Always a pleasure. Anytime. Appreciate that. That's Alex Batelier, senior, senior national politics reporter for Global News. Check out his story at globalnews.ca. It's really interesting because the Canada Public Health Agency acknowledged last month that it is buying location data from the cell phones of Canadians to try to track 
movement during the pandemic, try to figure out what people's behaviors are, where they're going and what they're doing. And for, this has become an upsetting thing. The privacy commissioner says they're looking into this to make sure everything is all private. But they're just doing what many other companies already do. They're paying for this information that, by the way, your cell phone provider does sell. So why are people upset about it if the federal government does it when other companies are doing it all the time, every day? Find a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You like a disposable cup at your favorite coffee shop? All right, but it's going to cost you 25 cents in the city of Vancouver. You know what? People seem to be able to cope with that. They think, all right, if if I'm allowed to, I will bring my own cup. But what about maybe some fast food when you're on the go? Well, you have to pay for that bag too, although I'm not sure what the alternative is. So as we've been talking about, city of Vancouver, starting January 1st, so about 12 days ago, had this new fee come into effect. Now, the money goes to businesses because it is not going back to the city. There's no special program. It's meant as a disincentive for us, the public, that we find our own ways of not using that disposable cup or not using that you know, bag when we go to get fast food. So how are businesses feeling about all this? Joining us now is Ian Tossinson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian. Hi, Cindy. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. So tell me, what kind of feedback are you getting from Vancouver businesses about this? Uh, I think we're caught in the middle of this one, to be honest with you. Um, you know, so it's a, you know, it's a great initiative. I mean, it's, we all want to see less uh, in landfills uh, with cups. I get that. We get that. But the problem is, is that you, you pointed this out all morning, is that the consumer is paying at 25 cents. And in a lot of cases, they don't have an alternative. So I was looking at the, um, your breakfast you had this morning. You probably paid about 7% extra for packaging just because of, I think you went through drive through and but there's no alternatives. And we went through this in Victoria, where we said we should really exempt drive-throughs from this because the consumer can't bring their own bag, and they certainly you're not going to yeah. hand your cup to, into the into the window and say, "Can you fill it for me?" That that doesn't work. So we need to make some changes here. And I don't. I think that the mayor yesterday was being a little bit sort of slapping this off. We need to get to it. So we should we should make sure we make where the consumer can't bring an alternative or there is, if there isn't an alternative, then we should make sure the consumer is not being penalized. And we are not ready. I mean, there is discussion and I had some emails this morning. Some of the chains are looking at re- re- reusable cups, which is great, but it's going to take time to do that. And there's still a portion of the population in the pandemic that don't want to do that either. So I think the timing, you know, we stopped, well, we didn't stop it, but we, we delayed it a year, and then it just sort of came in, and it was like all of a sudden it was December. And I remember phoning the city, and I said, you know, do you think we just put this off for six months? Because no one's ready for this. No one's mentally into the game to do yeah. this properly. And it was, no, no, it's we got to get on with this. You know, it's important environmental. So I don't think that we've ever had a real little chance to be strategic, to sit down and to say, look, at here are the problems here. And it's a little bit embarrassing, to be frank. You know, we're, we're collecting the money. And we don't really have an answer to where the money's going. I mean, I could say um, certainly could go to the costs because there are there have been crazy costs to try to set this up, especially with third-party delivery companies. The, all the program, right. programming, that's been a bit of a nightmare. And, and it, that actually hasn't been completed in a lot of cases. Um, there is, we could take this money and invest in, in more environmentally friendly equipment. We could use it to set up um, reusable cut programs in the future. That, that would be a good intention. But I don't think that strategically the industry's had a chance to sit down and say, how do we want to approach this? So 
we're feeling a little bit vulnerable, frankly. We, we don't want this to become a taxing grab for us because it isn't, because we have real costs here. But it is kind of it's just kind of odd. It just it's really hard to explain. No, I understand that because that's what I was thinking too. I was like, well, businesses you said are caught in the middle because they're collecting the money, and I'm sure right now you think, well, a lot of these places could probably use that extra money. But on the other hand, you're going, this isn't good for business if people start cutting out those daily trips because of this. No. And uh, I remember in the HST debate, um, Tim Horton said, if, if, if a price of a cup of coffee goes up 7%, that really has an effect on a certain element of their demographics that buy coffee at Tim Hortons. I mean, this stuff adds up. So we got a, well, another challenge here. Um, and I, I think the timing's wrong, but we're going to have to go back to, we are going to go back to City Hall and see if we can kind of get this. That makes it a bit more motivational. The other side of it is that business owners uh, starting in 2023 have to report the number of cups that they actually sell. And if they don't have a reuse, if they have a reusable program in place, they don't have to do that. But if they don't, they have to go to city hall, get the business license and say, I sold 600,000 cups last year. And, and again, there's bureaucracy and paperwork here. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's just, it, the timing is so wrong, but we're going to see what we can do with the city here. The city has been, pretty good about these things in the last couple of years and if we can get them in a place that we get the public on side i don't i don't think the public's on side in this one no i just think they're going like seriously they get 25 cents if we were setting up recycling facilities you know, totally different situation totally different Absolutely. situation yeah i think Absolutely. people would support it if they knew what this was for but as you say it's just there's too much confusion about this so ian if there's an update on this make sure you come back and tell us all about it okay I will. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That's Ian Tossinson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This week was a big week, is a big week here in BC. Schools are back open for in-person learning, and that has been a huge challenge for everyone involved in the system. I mean, I should say most of them are. There have been a couple of schools that are already experiencing what's called a functional closure, and that all has to do with making sure there's enough people in the school to keep the school up and running, what's called a functional closure. So should we be more careful? What's happening in our school system are we confident enough in the safety measures that have been put in place? Well, to talk more about all of this, joining us now is Jennifer Whiteside, the Minister of Education. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. How would you rate the back to school this week? Well, I think that um, I, I, I know many uh, kids and families were looking forward to coming uh, back to school after a, a delay or, uh, directed by, by Dr. Henry in order to put some additional plans in place. And I, I, I think there's uh, certainly um, uh, some caution out there for sure, and it's warranted. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, so far, so far it's, it's, it's going as, uh, as well as I think we had hoped it would. And what were you hoping for this week? What were the goals? Well, the goal with this week is, is first and foremost to ensure that the work that uh, we asked schools and districts to do last week was completed and communicated to students. And I think that, that that's been done across the system. I know there's been lots of reviewing of the enhanced safety measures, lots of uh, teachers going over with their, their classes, why it's important to wear masks and how that can help protect everybody in their community. Uh, the, the, I know that the uh, districts have put the... Um, the, uh, the learning continuity plans in place to ensure that in the event there is a functional closure, uh, that, that, that they can pivot relatively quickly to home-based learning. Now, you've already got a few of those functional closures, but do you expect more this week? 
Well, you know, Cindy, what we know about uh, about COVID generally, what has been true throughout the pandemic, is that schools reflect what's happening in the in the community, and uh, that's no different uh, than Omicron. But we know that we have a, a variant now that is uh, is is more widespread and more highly transmissible, and so we want to be ready uh, when that does show up in schools. I mean, I think there's there's no question it will show up in schools. The question is um, ensuring that we can that we can react and address that in the. Um, in hopefully as efficient a way as we as we have throughout the pandemic. Right. And why were why was the government so committed to getting the schools open? I know that there was a lot of parents who expressed concern about this, teachers that expressed concern about this, but mm-hmm. what was the rationale behind it? What we've really learned, particularly from the closure of schools early on in the pandemic, was that um, kids not having access to in-person learning comes with very significant uh, consequences in terms of their mental health, in terms of the interruption to their learning, and that those consequences are serious. Uh, the BCCDC uh, did a study on the impact of that period of closure and found that um, children and youth reported uh, increased mental distress, there was an increase in uh, eating disorders, uh, there was interrupted learning that takes time to, to get back from. And those, uh, th- those impacts um, have also been studied uh, nationally and internationally. So we, it, you know, this experience has really reinforced just how fundamentally important education is to kids, but to all of us, to, uh, to, to our broader society. So it is a fundamental public good, um, our, our education system, and we need to do everything that we can to make sure that kids benefit from it. Now, have you set guidelines and communicated those to the districts about when a functional closure should kick in, or is that something you're leaving up to the districts to figure out? Yeah, no, I mean, we, we certainly we have, although, uh, you know, just, you know, schools know their schools best and district superintendents know their districts best. So they, they know when they can, uh, when they can safely operate. And it's different depending on the kind, the, the, the size of school. So uh, if we have a smaller school with a smaller staff, you know, a 10 or 15 or 20 percent uh, um, uh, absence rate amongst the staff has a different kind of impact than it does in a, in a larger school. And so certainly schools have, have thought that through, have put those plans in place. We, we heard from the superintendent in Surrey, for example, that, you know, their estimation was that if they hit about a 25 percent absence um, rate amongst staff, that'll be very hard to, uh, to, to operate a school uh, safely. So certainly they are, uh, di- schools and districts are working in conjunction with public health every single day, as they have done throughout the, the course of the pandemic. Um, and there will be a lot of, uh, of, of uh, there's a lot of observation and monitoring and reporting into public health about what's, uh, what's happening so that we can, uh, schools can give uh, parents as much notice as possible when we think that's on the horizon. Right. What does modeling tell you, though, about how the next couple of weeks are, are, is going to go? I mean, is it going to get worse before we start to see an improvement? Well, I mean, I, I, I sort of, I, I leave the, the modeling for the, for the public health experts. Um, and, and what I heard from Dr. Henry uh, uh, yesterday was that, uh, you know, p- possibly there's a, a bit of a leveling off uh, happening. And I will we'll wait and see. Uh, I know we're, we'll have more modeling from public health on Friday to tell us what's happening more broadly with Omicron. And again, schools will reflect what's happening in communities. But, I mean, the incredible advantage that we have with this restart compared to uh where we were last January was that we have vaccinations now. 
and we have um, terrific pickup across our broader community. We still have a lot of work to do with the 5 to 11-year-olds, and I'd really encourage parents and implore parents to uh, look at the opportunity to get their, uh, have, have their young one uh, vaccinated because that is, that is just absolutely demonstrably proven again and again, over almost 10 million doses of, of vaccine delivered in this province, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of doses to, uh, delivered, um, uh, you know, across the country to, to 5 to 11-year-olds. We know that the vaccines are safe and effective, and they're, they're the best way to, uh, to get us through this. Yeah, does it concern you then when you hear that the rate is pretty low, like, what is it, 50% or so, right around there, for mm-hmm. children age 5 to 11? Yeah, I mean, I will say we, we saw really good pickup in the when the vaccine first became available, and we saw you know uh, uh, you know lots lots of parents uh, register, and we're sort of now caught up with that. And I you know I I, I think that uh, we, we we do need to be encouraging and supporting parents, uh, and I know that they're. Uh, that that their that the healthcare system their 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 family doctor also needs to be encouraging and supporting and talking talking with them um, to to encourage them to um, to understand what the what what the impact of the vaccination is so that they can uh, so that they can have their young one vaccinated. All right. Well, I'm sure parents will be waiting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for your time on that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Timmy. Jennifer Whiteside is the Minister of Education here in BC, talking about getting back to school this week, why it was so important. But honestly, I think if you're in the system, if you're a parent or a teacher, you're kind of bracing yourself for the next couple of weeks, right, to see what this return to school brings, what kind of impact it will have. If you want to weigh in about what you're seeing out there, what you are experiencing, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how about some good news for once when it comes to whales? And yes, there is good news to talk about, actually. According to the Pacific Whale Watch Association, 2021 was a great year for checking out the number of whales in the Salish Sea. Let's find out more about this. Aaron Glass joins us now, Executive Director for the Pacific Whale Watch Association. Aaron, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And like you said, it's great to have an opportunity to share good news for a change. Oh, we all need this, Erin. So tell us, why was 2021 such a good year? There were multiple reasons, which is so exciting. Uh, We had a record number of big killer whales in the area, a record number of humpback whale babies that were observed. Uh, Pretty much whales seen every single day in 2021. Okay, and how extraordinary is that? Uh. It's really exciting. I mean, researchers in this area especially have been following orca behavior for, you know, 50 years now. And this is something that we haven't seen with this big population to date. Uh, And the record wasn't just barely broken. It was pretty much shattered. (laughs) So they have really increased their presence in the last few years. Okay, what kind of whales are we talking about here? So these are the big killer whales. Uh, Some of your listeners may have heard of them referred to as transient killer whales in the past. Uh, They are the ones that feed on seals and sea lions and porpoises. And that transient name was given to them many decades ago because they used to be very rare visitors to this area. They were kind of mysterious. We didn't really know what they ate or where they went when they weren't here but as seals and sea lions and those other marine mammals that they feed on have recovered in number, they've really moved in and taken over. And that transient name doesn't really seem fitting anymore. So we've been referring to them as the big killer whales, that's B-I-G-G-S, 
after uh, Michael Big, who is a pioneer in orca research, uh, and, and that's kind of starting to catch. So Big's killer whales is the way that our naturalists refer to them as. Okay, and there were something like 11 of them, 11 calves that were born in 2021? Oh, yes, 11 babies on this population uh, right now is estimated to have about 360, 370 animals. So we added 11 to that uh, population this year. Uh, that's in stark contrast, as you might know, to the southern resident yeah. killer whale population, uh, which feed on salmon. Right now, the entire population is just 73 of those animals. Okay, so then, Aaron, is that the difference here? Is it the difference in, the, in which whales are thriving and those that are not depends on what their diet is? You got it. Food, food, food. So seals and sea lions are doing well. So the big killer whales are doing well. Chinook salmon especially is what the southern resident killer whales feed on. And that has not, unfortunately, been doing very well in BC waters lately. So they've been spending a lot more time on the outer coast, out off of the west coast of Vancouver Island and um, the United States. And uh, just aren't making that foray into the Salish Sea as often as they used to. Right. So all of this good news, though, about these other whale populations. And what can we attribute this to? Yeah. Uh, so, of course, scientists are always uh, looking for reasons why. <laughs> and the simplest one, I think, in this case could just be that as we get more and more adults, both with the big killer whales and with the uh, humpback whales, of course, you'd expect more babies. Uh, but both humpback whales, which feed on tiny little krill, as well as bait fish, and the big killer whales, which feed on seals and sea lions, uh, they both seem to have a steady source of food. And because they're both pretty generalist feeders, you know, they'll eat uh, quite a variety of things, they have been really adapting well to the environment here. And when you say the environment here, is that off the BC coast? Yeah, you got it. So uh, the Salish Sea is where our Pacific Whale Watch operators uh, primarily operate, uh, all the way down to South Puget Sound in Washington and all the way up uh, towards Telegraph Cove in BC. Uh, so all those inland waters in between. Okay, so what are you looking for then in 2022? Like last year sounds like a great year, but what does that mean you're keeping an eye on for this year? I know it'll be pretty tough to top the records that we had in 2021, but we always like to to hope that it will be even better. Uh, but really just looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, how often these big killer whales really will be here. They were pretty much here every single day uh, in uh, 2021. I think they were here about 90% of the time. And those are just the times that someone was out there looking for them, right? So I'm sure they were probably sticking around even more than that. Uh, so we're excited to see Biggs, excited to keep seeing this humpback whale baby boom, and, uh, and, and really just looking forward to, to what 2022 has in store. Makes you a bit hopeful, doesn't it? That is the key message. Yes, as you kind of alluded to, especially when it comes to environmental stories, if you just keep hearing negative, 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 it's easy to give up and think that, oh, we can never fix this problem. Why try? And so I like to share these positive stories to let people know these protective measures that we're putting in place to help protect humpback whales and seals and sea lions, which bring the big killer whales, they worked. And, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't have them here in the Salish Sea. And now we have them here in record numbers. And so we just have to keep plugging away, keep talking about the important issues, you know, salmon restoration for sure, as far as southern resident mm -hmm. killer whales. And hopefully, uh, if, if we're able to address the salmon issue, as we have some of the other ones that affected the bigs and the humpbacks, southern residents will also be able to rebound. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
Yes, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. It's lovely to talk about good news, especially when it comes to whales. That's Erin Glass, Executive Director for the Pacific Whale Watch Association. 2021 was a banner year. It was a bit of a baby boom for the different whale populations. Bigs, killer whales, humpback whales, gray whales. They all had a great year and they were able to observe that. That is good news that we need to hear, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about your stress level. I really felt it actually during that last story that we were just talking about. It was such a good news story about more whales in the Salish Sea and what a record year 2021 was. And you thought, yeah, we don't hear enough about the good stuff these days. Believe me, we look for it. It's just harder and harder to find it. And so that's just everyday stuff we're talking about, right? The news, which is coming at you all the time. Now, going back to work is probably stressful. You've got kids that you might have to deal with adding to that stress. How do you manage that? How do you manage that in the workplace? Well, joining us now is Astrid Kendrick, who's a director of field experience at the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary. Astrid, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This must be a popular line of work these days that you are in. Uh, yeah, I think so. And it's uh, There's a lot of people asking for help. And so getting a student teacher is something that uh, a lot of, I think, practicing teachers are really happy to have for sure. Okay, so how do we do this? When you talk about workplace stress, how, how does that manifest itself? Well, you know, I think it manifests itself differently for different people. It really depends on you know, what business you're in, what kind of things you're doing. So I'm in the field of education. So for me, a lot of my stress is really around what's going on in schools. Um, I feel stress as a parent, you know, my son's in grade six. So I feel concerns about him going into school and stuff like that. And that kind of, as you were saying, follows me through my workplace. I'm currently working from home um, as University of Calgary has us working remotely and so I'm disengaged from my colleagues and teaching online and so it's just kind of a variety of different things happening right now. Astrid, how do you manage all this? Well, for me personally, uh, over the last year, uh, so 2021, actually I've been doing a walking streak and so um, in January 2021, I joined the Fernie, I don't know if you know where Fernie BC is. But every year they have a challenge, the Fernie streak. And so it's do something outside for 30 minutes. And so I decided, you know, I'm kind of in getting less than 2,000 steps a day. I think maybe I can try walking. And so that challenge was to walk every day for 30 day or for the month of January and came to the end of the month. And I thought, you know, what? why don't I just keep going? You know, let me see where I end up. And so I ended up walking or doing something out there outside every day for 365 days. Wow. How did that make you feel? Like, what kind of a difference did you notice in yourself? Well, actually, a lot of things. And I think probably my greatest source of pride was recently in November when I went to see my family doctor and he said, you know, your your blood work is the best it's been. What's going on with you? And so even though that was never my intent, um, just walking every day, helped me to kind of build my own physical health, which is really wonderful. But mentally and emotionally, it's been just really wonderful to get away from my desk and outside and see the world. And even though in those days when it was really smoky and really hot and raining, it sounds like it's really raining there in Vancouver right now. It really just is. Getting, <laughs> you know, uh, just the chance to get away from my computer and, and see the world and get away from Twitter and Facebook was, you know, really rejuvenating and time that I've really enjoyed spending. 
Isn't that interesting, though, Astrid, because, you know, when this first pandemic first hit, everybody started working from home. We thought, oh, isn't this a great thing? People don't have to commute and it'll be so much easier working from home. And that really hasn't turned out to be the case for so many people. No, you know, I think that distance from colleagues is really difficult. You know, uh, I was just thinking through my day yesterday and even though, you know, I went to a bunch of Zoom meetings, I didn't actually speak in person to anybody until my son got home from school. So um, being separated, I think, from other people has been tricky. And so getting outside and for me, you know, I've got a Starbucks within walking distance. So some days just to see other people, you know, I'll walk over to that Starbucks and just kind of look around and be like, okay, the world is still spinning around me. It's all good. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. So what what are some of the things that you recommend for people to just try to make ourselves feel better, particularly when it comes to workplace stress? You know, well, I think for me, one of the big things was picking something small that I enjoyed doing. So I'm sure there's people out there right now saying, well, I'm not going to walk every day, so I'm not going to do this. And, I, you know, I think that's fair. I think choosing the thing that you want to do to make yourself feel better is probably the main part. And then seeing, you know, is there a community of people out there who's doing that same thing? So is there a community of artists that meets once a week online to talk about some of the painting that they've done or is there you know there's a lot of people I'm probably doing dry January so I know there's in Calgary here the the boring little girls club with the challenge to be sober for the month of January and they also run in September you know it's really about doing the thing that you know you want to do and then finding the support system around you that you can just keep doing it right seems simple and yet it is so challenging for so many of us Astrid thank you for your time this morning Thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a new poll out that talks about who it is that British Columbians think would do a better job when it comes to solving housing affordability. Do they think it would be the provincial government or do we think it would be the federal government? Our Raji Sohal joins us now to talk more about this. And Raji, apparently we think it's the provincial government. Yeah, Simi, although... <laughs> I can't be alone in thinking that I feel as though it's beyond us now and no one can solve it. But yeah, when it comes to the housing crisis, I know that a lot of people feel like the government did too little too late. The federal government didn't plan properly. The province did too little too late. And that they kind of let the housing crisis spiral without checks and balances. And a lot of developers got super rich uh, quick on easy policies that didn't try to slow them down. And when you look at housing in BC, a real estate market that continues to climb even during a pandemic um, and has housing supply shortage and outer reach prices, it's hard to believe that anyone has a workable solution. But yes, this poll done by Research Co. says that over 50% of people polled in BC have confidence in the province doing something about it rather than the federal liberals. Here's Mario Conseco, the president of Research Co. There's a higher level of recognition for the efforts of the BCNDB government. You know, we've asked questions about the taxes that they brought in, and they have been remarkably successful, particularly everything that is related to foreign buyers. Uh, I think that helps people look at some policies and essentially tie them uh, with the government that is implementing them. And there really hasn't been a lot uh, from the liberals at the federal level when it comes to the 
uh, housing matter. You know, there were a, a lot of discussions about certain things they wanted to do. Some of the things that they actually proposed are already in place in some parts of the country. And I don't think there's that connection necessarily to look at the liberals as the ones who are going to have uh, the keys to solve the housing issue. Uh, there was a lot of um, goodwill uh, that BC residents had uh, towards the federal government on matters such as COVID-19 in the early stages. But now that we're starting to get past that, uh, they just don't see them as the ones who have the solution uh, for housing. If anything, there's a higher level of support for the idea of the NDP handling things in Ottawa and making things a little bit better. Yes, I mean, I think a lot of people welcomed that home, foreign home buyers tax when that came about. Here's Mario Canseco again. And I think part of what is crucial for the NDP is to try to connect with younger voters. They tend to be more center left minded. They tend to vote for them more often than they would for the BC Liberals. And this is the group that is desperate in the, to, to get into the housing market and to be able to actually afford a place of their own. So as we continue to go through this, uh, we have seen the success of the taxes that they implemented, but there's certainly no solution in sight for those who are willing to, and, and certainly hoping to get into the market. So the poll shows BC residents feel that over 50%, well, 50, over 50% of respondents felt that they have more confidence in the province's ability to handle unaffordability of homeownership. But that's obviously not universal by any means. And I talked to a UBC prof who headed the UBC Sociology Zoning Project. It's this project that assembles various zoning bylaws into a coherent whole. You should check it out online. It's really cool. And he says that there's an opportunity to look for even more solutions, but do it locally. So he wants to see, get the municipal, get the municipalities set up. And his name is uh, Nathan Louster, and he's at the uh, Department of Sociology at UBC. One other thing that I think is really interesting about these results is that the NDP under the province looks like they're more trusted in all parts of the province, which is also striking, um, than municipal leaders locally. And that's probably good news for David Eby, who recently has been uh, striking a uh, somewhat confrontational tone with some of the municipalities around the province that they need to start doing their work, their job in terms of approving housing and uh, getting new housing developed. Um, and if they don't, the province may be looking into reforming some of the municipal powers uh, and their abilities to actually block housing. All right. This is a really interesting discussion, Raji, given that as well, it's a municipal election year here. Yes. And you and we have heard Housing Minister David Eby kind of musing about this, saying, listen, something's going to have to be done. It's almost like he's giving them some warning here about either you guys start talking about this or we are going to have to try to make it happen. Yeah, and till now, uh, the municipalities haven't had that kind of pressure on them, I feel, to take care of this problem. And it makes sense that the municipality should have to step up. So does that mean uh, having to share uh, their platforms around housing more this uh, coming up election? I have a feeling that we're going to hear so much more about housing this cam- these campaigns that are just about to roll through. I think so, too. Is the pressure on the municipal level of government or are they going to say, no, 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 we're not going to do it. And that makes the provincial government forced, right, to step in and kind of be the bad guy and say, we're going to force you to approve these projects. Yeah. And I wonder also where renting is going to fit into this whole equation. We've been having this discussion with various people on on this show uh, over the last several months about whether housing, is it 
is housing an investment? Uh, is it a, or is it a place to live? Is it meant to just meet your basic needs? And I hear people, you know, that want to enjoy, they do want to just enjoy their home on their own as a place to live, but they actually live in a fear of scarcity and they think, okay, no, I have to think about it as an investment. And if they have kids, they have to think about that too. Uh, then it turns it, housing back into an investment issue. But there is like, I hear more about younger people saying, okay, well, maybe I just have to be committed to renting for life. And so I wonder if we're going to hear more about uh, measures to protect renters so that they their anxieties around homeownership are reduced. So that might be something we hear more of this coming up election too. Oh, it's going to be such an interesting election year on that municipal <laughs> yeah. level. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Sumi. That is our Raji Sohal there talking about a poll done by Mario Conseco that shows British Columbians say that they think the provincial government rather than the federal government would be better at fixing housing affordability. Uh, but we've heard the provincial government, David Eby's the housing minister, and he's been talking about this. They've been saying, listen, at the municipal level, they've got to break this logjam of projects. Developers want to build stuff. We need more supply. Where is it getting stuck? It's getting stuck at that municipal level. If you want to weigh in, send me at CKNW. 